You know, I had no idea where she might have been, or even if she was still alive. Police immediately began a, a large-scale investigation. Did you kill Elizabeth Bain on June the 19th, 1990? Elizabeth's body has never been found. I'm Phil Martino. And I'm Madison Fitzpatrick. This is Tracking a Killer, the Cold Case Files. Today, we are going back over 30 years to the killing of a university student in Toronto's East End that has never been solved, although police thought they had her killer several months into the investigation. 22-year-old Elizabeth Bain was a student at the University of Toronto's Scarborough campus when she disappeared on June 19, 1990. Media outlets quickly reported her disappearance as the Scarborough rapist was still on the loose. Good evening from the CFTR newsroom, I'm Daniel Lack. Foul play is now suspected in the disappearance of Elizabeth Bain, a U of T student who vanished last week in Scarborough. Her vehicle was found three days later with blood inside. Till this day, her body has never been found. However, Bain's boyfriend, Robert Boltovich, was convicted of her murder. He spent eight years behind bars before being found not guilty in a retrial in 2008. At this time, the case remains unsolved. Detective Stephen Smith from the Toronto Police Cold Case and Missing Persons Unit is joining us to talk about the Elizabeth Bain case. Now, this case is interesting for a number of reasons. Among the reasons it's interesting, it's been over 30 years. The victim's body has never been found. There was someone who was charged with the murder and the person went to prison, had a retrial, and after the retrial was found not guilty. So this case to this day has not been solved. So let's start a detective with who was Elizabeth Bain? Elizabeth Bain was a 22-year-old university student living in the Scarborough area of Toronto in 1990. By all accounts, she was a fine young lady. She had a lot of friends. Uh, she was active in the community, active in sports within the University of Toronto campus, the Scarborough campus. And uh, she was going on with her life at the time. What happened to her? Well, on Wednesday, June 20th, 1990, her mother phoned in to the Toronto police to report that uh, Elizabeth hadn't shown up at home and that her mother had not seen her since about 4 p.m. on June 19th, 1990. At that time, Elizabeth had told her mom that she was going to the university campus to see about uh, uh, some tennis schedules. Uh, that's the last her mother saw of her. Police immediately began uh, a large-scale investigation, a massive search through the Scarborough area, and uh, Elizabeth wasn't able to be found. Uh, within three days, they found Elizabeth's car over at uh, Morrish and Kingston Road, also in the Scarborough area, parked in a parking lot. And at that time, forensics officers went through and found a quantity of blood within the vehicle. Unfortunately, over the years, uh, Elizabeth's body has never been found. Um, and that's the biggest part of this case that uh, we're looking to solve at this point. So was there enough blood in the vehicle to show that she could not have survived? There was. With all this, the, all the events that had occurred at that time, officers were confident enough to uh, declare this missing person as a homicide. Um, it's very rare that they'll declare a homicide without actually having a body. But with the circumstances surrounded and the amount of blood that was in the vehicle, they were confident to say that she had met with foul 
play at this time. So detective, besides the blood that was found in the car, was there anything else that was found that could indicate that Elizabeth might have been dead? Well, unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of forensic inform information in this case, mostly because her body was never found. Um, but just from the circumstances, the type of person she was, she wasn't the type of person that uh, would not be in contact with her family, with her friends, um, that was regularly disappearing, that would go away for days or weeks on end. Um, her family was, it was a very close-knit family, and they always knew where she was and what she was doing. She always stayed in contact, made sure everyone was aware of, of where she was, what she was doing. And she was a happy-go-lucky girl with a lot of friends. Uh, she was always out with her friends and involved in the sports community. So when nobody had heard from her for a number of days, combined with her vehicle being moved from the original spot where she had went um, at the U of T campus and found out in, uh, in the east side of Scarborough with blood in it, uh, the culmination of all the events led the officers to believe that uh, she had met with foul play. Why was her boyfriend charged in connection with her death? Well, I wasn't the original investigating officer, so I can't speak too much of all the evidence that they went into. But obviously, the officers at the time believed that uh, he was responsible for the death. Elizabeth's boyfriend at the time was Robert Baltovich, a University of Toronto Scarborough campus graduate. In an interview with the College of Social and Applied Human Sciences at the University of Guelph last fall, he said he and Elizabeth had been in a relationship for about a year before she disappeared. And when she went missing, um, in the beginning, we didn't really know what to think. Um, she had left some somewhat cryptic uh, diary entries suggesting that she might have just wanted to run away or that she might have wanted to harm herself. But, you know, we found her car about two and a half days after she went missing. Uh, the car was examined. Uh, there was blood found in the back of her car, which, as it turns out, uh, belonged to her. Uh, and from that point on, it became uh, an investigation of foul play with the suspicion that she'd been murdered. Baltovich says he was invited to speak to the police several times during the period when she was first reported missing. Which was the Wednesday morning, June 20th, 1990. And it was actually on uh, June 24th, which was a Sunday, that uh, I was asked to attend for an interview uh, by the Toronto Police Homicide Squad. And uh, about halfway through the interview, that's when they proceeded to tell me that they were absolutely convinced that I had murdered her and that um, it would probably be easier for me if I just confessed, which of course I couldn't do because I didn't know what had happened to her. And, um, you know, I had no idea where she might have been or even if she was still alive. But um, five months to the day after Liz went missing, I was arrested and I was charged with first degree murder. Um, I spent a year in custody uh, before I was granted bail. Uh, in large part because after a preliminary hearing, I was um, committed to trial on second-degree murder, which in Canada is considered to be a, a, a less serious offense. It's still a very serious offense, but certainly less serious in first degree. And um, uh, my trial began in January of 1992, and on uh, March 31st, uh, you know, much to my uh, disappointment, I was uh, convicted of that crime. 
Baltovich appealed. In 2004, he was granted a new trial. And on April 22, 2008, he was acquitted. In my case, uh, the single greatest contributor is probably uh, the single greatest contributor in any wrongful conviction, which is erroneous eyewitness or you know, identification evidence. In my case, no eyewitnesses, but two witnesses in particular who believed that they had seen me at crucial times, uh, one on the night that Liz went missing, uh, another several days after she went missing, uh, because of course there was a lag between the time Liz went missing and when her car was found. I was actually arrested as a result of a man who claimed to be able to identify me as having been driving Liz's car roughly three days after she went missing. So. I think if you look at wrongful convictions as a whole, uh, obviously there are a lot of different uh, causes. And, and you know, in many cases, there are multiple causes within individual cases. But for me, and, and certainly I know from reading the literature, uh, it was definitely uh, erroneous eyewitness identification. With Baltovich found not guilty, this meant the Elizabeth Bain homicide case was still unsolved. So besides her boyfriend being charged, were there any other suspects that they were looking into at the time? Well, I imagine there, there was a large number of suspects. There always is in any of these cases. Uh, you know, we've, we've realized from the Jessup case, uh, we realized early on from the Kaufman report in the 80s that uh, you can't have tunnel vision. You can't just tunnel in on one suspect and, and determine that they're responsible for this. You have to follow the evidence to to find out who is actually the person responsible. Because sometimes the person that seems most likely or seems most reasonable had nothing to do with this. So you follow the evidence and it leads you to the suspect that's responsible for these, these heinous events. We know that it's possible that Paul Bernardo at the time was sought out as a suspect or was possibly involved. How did he play out in the case? Yes, Paul Bernardo was... Uh... He was brought in as an alternative suspect at the time. Um, this was during the time when the Scarborough rapes were going on, and it was within a month um, that Bernardo had actually committed another uh, sexual assault in the Scarborough area. And when the investigators looked at him, it appears that he was in Scarborough during the three days uh, around the disappearance of Miss Bain. Now, investigators went through the entire vehicle, combed the entire vehicle uh, forensically, and they weren't able to find any evidence of, of Mr. Bernardo being in the vehicle, but he was raised as a, as a viable alternative suspect. Before Baltovich was found not guilty in his second trial, Toronto Police Detective Brad Hoover of the Sex Crimes Unit interviewed Paul Bernardo on June 7th of 2007. Did you kill Elizabeth Bain on June the 19th, 1990? Well, it's a loaded question. I mean, are we going to go back and, 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 and go through the, the time sequence of what happened in my life? I mean, I, I could just give a yes or no answer, but, you know, there's a lot of issues about that. Right. You know, the, Carlos and my role, who did what, where, when, this is why I said, did you guys, you know, go down there to get a polygraph to get to see if she was telling the truth? Like, why didn't Bevan do it in the first place? I mean, he's polygraphing everyone with a Camaro. Why would he make a deal with someone and not give them a polygraph? It's not incomprehensible to me. Uh, you know, because now I'm sitting, my file says her version, and it's a lie. <laughs> you know, 
I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I, you know, I'm not making frivolous points here. I mean, and now you're asking me, after you, after you said Peel Regional said I'm lying about this, and then you're saying I'm lying about my profile, you're saying I'm lying if I'm better or not, now you're saying, hey, did you kill this person? I mean, well, you're saying I'm lying here, here, and here. I could say, no, I didn't. Uh, but, I mean, you already said I'm lying here with the Peel, you're saying... Okay, I'm not, saying, I'm not saying anything no, but, about who's lying, I'm simply... Uh, and I've given you directions to go to find the truth. Right, so no one's, and, I've, no one's done that. and I've asked, and, and again, I've told you that I've uh, done investigations on information that you've told me, and, and as a result of that information, I've been able to uh, uh, verify in my mind where you've told me the truth. So if Peel yeah. Region is lying about you or someone else is lying about you, I have no control over that or no... Well, it goes right to credibility. Well, absolutely it does. And that's, I guess, the, the easy way that is to, if we can go through, we'll answer the questions. And yes, I hope to be able to go through some timeline to identify where you were, what you were doing specifically, in relation to this this case. Anyways, I know I'm giving you guys a hard time being argumentative about certain things, but I mean, really, I'm a human being, and when you guys do all these things, I, I've got to, anyways, I'll, I'll try and truncate it a little bit more, but anyways, the answer to that is, is no, but the 800-pound gorilla in the room is, that's a life 25 sentence, you know? It really comes down to credibility, right. and, and not only credibility, but then again, timeline. I mean, between what Carlos and my roles were respectively and this and that. The answer is no to that question. Okay. Um, did you have anything to do with her disappearance? No. D did you know Elizabeth B? Not that I know of. Had you ever met her? I'm going to answer that with uh, I don't remember. So in the end, he, he wasn't the suspect that, that they were looking for anyone else. Yeah, as I said, I mean, not going by names, but they would have looked at upwards of 50 to 100 other people that they would have been able to discount. Either they weren't in the area, there were no forensics to tie them to the scene. Um, they had alibis. There's, there's a myriad of ways that you can narrow down the suspect pool, um, but they would have went through it. And obviously at the time, the investigators were confident on, their, uh, on the arrest of the, Mr. Baltovich. So speaking about Mr. Voltovich, why initially, obviously, he was tried and, and found guilty, but why was there a retrial? Why, why is he free as of right now? I don't know all the details of the, uh, the retrial, but he was one of the people that obviously had raised the alternative suspect of Paul Bernardo, and it was looked into and it was found to be possibly viable. And at the retrial, the Crown decided not to call any evidence against Mr. Baltovich, and at that point, he was acquitted of, of uh, the murder of Miss Bain. And he's been, he was actually released prior to that on, uh, on bail pending his appeal. And he's out in the community, and he's communicated with us and wants to make sure that we're still investigating this, which we are, and uh, we still have hopes to uh, interview Mr. Baltovich at, at some point. So now it's been over 30 years. Has there been a recent development in this case? We have received some tips in regards to um, where her body may be located, which we investigated thoroughly. Um, we've used a number of different investigative techniques. Um, unfortunately, we still haven't uh, been able to find Ms. Bain's body. And as I said, that would be one of the, uh, the biggest breaks we could get in this case if anyone happens to know, because uh, we'd hope that there, even though it's been so many years, 
um, and the remains would probably be skeletal, we would hope that there would still be some sort of DNA uh, attached to Miss Bain's body that would uh, would give us a break in this case. Now, besides finding the body, what what else is going to help crack this case? Because what if you can't find the body? <laughs> well, you know, Phil, we've talked about this before, and the two things that we think that that break cold cases open are changes in science and changes in relationships. Um, right now, we don't have any scientific ability to to do anything further with this case um, unless we we find Miss Bain's body, and then the scientific techniques can come into play. So what we're hoping for in this case is that there's been a change in relationship with some people that were involved in this case, whether witnesses or uh, people that were made aware of what happened that night and that they're maybe living a different life. They aren't involved with the people that maybe have provided them with this information. And um, they hear about this case and they come forward and give us some information in regards to what they've been told and as to who the, who's responsible for this. Now, are Toronto Police still in contact with Elizabeth Bain's family? Yes, I mean, we're, we stay in contact with, with all the families that actually want contact with us. Um, sometimes it's sporadic, sometimes it's uh, a little more regular, but uh, we have contact for, for information for families for all 100, 698 cold cases we have active. Just obviously probably one of the biggest questions, just going back to kind of the beginning, but how difficult was it to prosecute someone or, or even build up a case without a body? Like clearly you had, you know, the forensic evidence of the blood, but how difficult is that? And, and you know, like how many other cold cases are there where it's so similar to this scenario where there's just no body found, but other evidence of a possible crime being committed? Yeah, that's a great question. It's a, it's a very rare occurrence that uh, we actually prosecute people for uh, murders or homicides when there is no body found. I mean, it's difficult just right off the bat to, to prove that there was an actual homicide and this person hasn't just disappeared or started another life in another part of the world. Um, that's, that's, the very, that's a difficult part to begin with, with without a, uh, an actual physical body. And then to convinced that there's enough evidence that someone committed murder without any forensic evidence to say that they actually had access to the body or, or were with the body at that point is a lot tougher. I mean, these days it's, it's a little bit easier because of uh, tracking that we have with our cell phones, with our computers, uh, video surveillance systems. So we're able to put people in areas at certain times. We're able to discount people's uh, alibis and uh, that would make it a bit easier, but it's still a very, very difficult process to prosecute someone without a, uh, without a body and a homicide. And because this was a number of years ago, obviously I would hope or think that evidence would be kept from the original crime and everything like that. Are you hoping that things like that can be retested when science develops and, and different testing is available? Like if, if there was DNA possibly at the scene that you are not sure of where to test or, or something like that? Absolutely. I mean, uh, DNA is such a huge part of what we do. And uh, every year we progress with uh, scientific techniques where we're being able to use smaller and smaller portions to be able to find DNA and, um, and code the DNA to give us an actual profile or offender profile, victim profile. 
So we regularly retest um, our evidence in cases. That's part of what we do. Um, just because, as we said, you can use smaller and smaller amounts. We can use smaller and smaller cutouts where you can find an actual DNA profile. So we're doing that on a continuous basis. And yes, we are hopeful that in the future that we'll have something that'll be able to pull a, a profile off for us. So we'll be able to definitively say, we can put this person with Miss Bain in her vehicle. Do you have like a theory? Like, is there a theory that you're, that you have about what happened to her? You know, with this one, not really. I mean, it's, it's very difficult because she goes to the actual campus of, of U of T. We know she was parked in the parking lot there. Um, we believe that she went and had conversations with some people at the, uh, the tennis area. And from there on, we, we really don't know what happened. I mean, at some point her cars moved. Um, it appears that she may have been in the passenger seat at that point. So someone else was driving her vehicle. And uh, we're really not sure what happened in, in those moments. And that's something we'd love somebody to fill in, even a, a portion of those blanks for us, um, if they can remember or if, they, if they've received information, any little piece that could put us between where she was at the U of T and how her car uh, ended up out in uh, East Scarborough three days later, that would, be, that would be a huge portion for us. So the last people to see her or any witnesses were those people at the, at the tennis court then? Yeah, it was people at the, the U of T that, uh, that last saw her. So, I mean, obviously, you know how it is when you're on a university campus, you see so many people. Um, once it's brought up, they'd obviously remember, but I don't think at the time it was anything memorable. It was just, you know, another of the thousand people that were going in and out of campus that you'd ran into during the day. Um, obviously, once they find out that, that some foul play has come, it, it strikes their memory a little bit more. But unfortunately, nobody was watching her, her movements that day too, so that they could tell us exactly what she was doing. Yeah, and for the car to be found three days later, it's, it's surprising that nobody saw the car in that area previously or it was unusual for it to be parked there or or nobody um you know like if you see a car in a parking lot for that amount of time you kind of question did somebody just leave this here or is somebody you know in the car but it's it's interesting to see that maybe it was just parked there on the third day instead of being left there over time yeah absolutely and i mean there's a large wooded area i mean all of scarborough in that area there's there's a an immense amount of uh of wooded area and every officer in Toronto, the OPP, Durham, they would all have been looking for that vehicle. We would have had a broadcast off immediately for the plate of that vehicle, the silver Toyota, um, and everybody would have been looking for it. So if it was out driving around, you would have thought that someone uh, would have seen it and pulled it over. So she was last seen alone. Yes, she was last seen alone. That's the last information that we have. Um, but saying that, um, that was early in the afternoon, about 24 hours before her disappearance was was reported. So, um, you know, in a 24 hour span, there's so many things that you could have, would have, or should have done. Um, we just don't know what exactly she did after she went to the, the school that afternoon. Is there any chance of this case being solved 30 years later?
Absolutely. Every case is solvable. You just need that one little piece of the puzzle and, uh, and we can solve it. As we said, the two ways, advances in science and changes in relationship, those are the two best ways for us to solve cold cases. And we're hoping that one of those comes through, but all of these cases are solvable. It's just, we just have to put the work in to solve them. Toronto police say the cold case unit continues to look into unsolved homicides, recognizing that beyond stats, there are still families looking for answers and resolution. I'm Madison Fitzpatrick. And I'm Phil Martino. Join us next time for a look at another Toronto cold case.